My name is Mark White. Those of you who are not familiar with my having been former governor of the state of Texas <laughs> will be glad this morning to have the chance to meet me. I had that experience a number of years ago, checking into a hotel in the 80s, I believe it was, in Nacogdoches as I was moving into that city. And I came to the desk about two o'clock that morning and introduced myself to the lady that was going to take me in. And she laughed when I gave her my name. She said, well, I've heard a lot of people pretend to be a lot of people, but not the governor. And I said, well, I am the man, but I am not the governor and not related to him. But I've often thought about my experiences in life with being around governors, being around people of great authority, and how it made me feel on the inside to be in the presence of someone that we all thought was a tremendous character. A friend of mine a number of years ago told me of living in Oklahoma and a state senator passing away at that particular time that he was serving that week as the chaplain of the Senate in the state. He said they had to plan a funeral. The governor had asked them to plan a funeral for this very noble man and they didn't know exactly what to do because there was no precedence for it, no protocol that they could follow that would be honorable enough for a man like that who had served so long and so well their state. And so they had to just start from scratch about how they could do this in a dignified way. And they said everybody that was there was somebody of uh, stature. Everyone was someone that people knew everywhere. And we didn't want to misplace a foot. We wanted to do everything just right. We wanted to give the honor that was due to this man. And we certainly did not want to do anything that would detract from it. And then he said, it hit me. He said, I have been to I don't know how many church services in my life where nobody even gave half as much thought to what they would do to honor the name of God. And I'm here to tell you this morning that we need to honor the name of God and we need to take our cue from great men and women of old recorded for us in Scripture that will help us to understand how God is to be praised and how God is to be revered, how God is to be loved and appreciated and honored for who and what He happens to be. And the reason is because we have a God who is great above anything that has ever set itself up to be God. I want you to consider 2 Chronicles with me just a moment here, the second chapter and verse 6. And this has reference, of course, to King Solomon of Israel who was tasked by his father and by God for the building of a temple in which God would be worshipped. And the text tells us that Solomon determined to build this temple for the name of the Lord. He was also going to build a royal palace for himself. But Solomon selected 70,000 men to bear burdens, 8,000 to quarry stone in the mountains, and 3,600 to oversee them. Then Solomon sent to Hiram, the king of Tyre, saying, As you have dealt with David my father, and sent him cedars to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. Behold, I am building a temple for 
the name of the Lord my God to dedicate it to him, to burn before him sweet incense for the continual showbread, for the burnt offerings morning and evening, on the Sabbaths, on the new moons, and on the set feasts of the Lord our God. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. And the temple which I build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a temple, since heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? Now Solomon's mode of worship you recognize if you've read the Old Testament because it's filled, this passage is, with references to what the law of Moses said was to be done in the worship of God. It's foreign to us in many ways, the animal sacrifices, the incense burning, all of the other things that are mentioned there were things that were supplanted and superseded eventually by the new covenant of Christ, of which you and I are a part. None of us were born to the family of Israel. None of us were given the law that was contained in ordinances, the Old Testament, as a binding covenant and agreement between us and our God. And Jesus took away, of course, the Old Covenant. He took away these forms of worship. He took away these particular modes and methods by which men and women would approach God and bring their duty before Him. But it's the same God that we worship, that Abraham worshiped. It's the same God that Isaac worshiped, that Jacob worshiped. It's the same God that Jesus proceeded from and whom Jesus praised. And we need to come to understand that though the means by which we may approach Him have changed somewhat, God is still God. And God is still great above all gods. You know, I started as I thought about this lesson to say that this sermon is really a sermon about how the Old Testament world was full of many gods. And then it occurred to me very quickly that the New Testament described a world that was filled with many gods. And the Apostle Paul, upon coming, for example, to the city of Athens in Acts the 17th chapter, saw a city that was devoted to the worship of all sorts of deities. And then it struck me that it's not just the Old Testament world or the New Testament world, it's also our world. That is a world of all sorts of gods that people bow down to, that people worship, that people reverence. And so what I've come to realize is, is that the thing that Solomon was saying in this passage that we have before us this morning is that in whatever place we may be, the attitude and disposition and the approach that we make to our God is going to have to be the same because our God is the same. Great is our God above all gods, no matter where you're looking at them, no matter when they may have been worshipped by someone, our God supersedes all of the imaginary deities that people have worshipped. We live in a time where individualism 
and pluralism has infiltrated and thoroughly permeated religion in our land to the point that this is so relevant to us to recognize that the God that we believe and serve and preach is not like the gods that other people may worship. Individualism says that God is to every person just what that person perceives him or her to be. And pluralism says that no one can say that someone else's perception of God is wrong. Everybody's right when it comes to God as far as the pluralistic idea that permeates our world today is concerned. And if we deny the accuracy or the truthfulness of another person's image of God, that is generally considered in our society to be absolute heresy or even worse if that's possible. And I use the word image deliberately this morning to describe what people have put into their minds about God because though we may not carve our images of God in gold or silver or wood, we may not be putting our images of God upon the wall, they may not be over the mantles of our fireplaces at home, we still bow down to those images that we carry around in our hearts and in our minds, whether they are accurate images or not. And our perception of God focuses us in a certain direction that causes us to respond to God according to our perception. Our images are not always engraved or defined by the scriptures, you see. Our notion sometimes of what God is and who God is is not something that we got out of the book. We got it from our own imaginations. It is amazing, isn't it, that human beings ever were idolaters. And we look back on people of old, and especially as we read the Bible, and we look at Israel's preoccupation with the idolatry of the nations around them, we wonder, how did they ever fall for that? How did they ever get into that mode of thinking when they had known the one true God? when they had known the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when they had seen His mighty works, how did they ever become enamored of all of those pluralistic Canaanite gods and fall into worshiping them? When I say to you this morning what Solomon said, great is our God, for He is greater than all gods. Are we really talking this morning about the same God that Solomon was talking about? Or are we talking about our own private icon? All of this is important because it's going to determine our response to God. And that is the bottom line of the message I'm trying to preach to you this morning. The Israelites, though they did not always act in accordance with what they knew, had knowledge of who the real God in the world actually was. After their deliverance from Egypt and after they received the law of God at Mount Sinai all the way up to the reign of King Solomon from whom we've been reading here this morning, God's presence had always been among the people in the tabernacle. 
And you remember the tabernacle from studying the Old Testament. It was a tent-like structure that could easily be moved around from place to place in their wilderness wanderings. But when they possessed the land, eventually, and they were dwelling in the land that God had promised the descendants of Abraham, King David wanted to replace the tabernacle with a permanent structure that would not have to be moved about, would not have to be repaired probably so often. And he wanted to replace that as the place where God would be worshipped in the very same way that he had been worshipped in that temporary tent, but in a more permanent setting. And God denied David that privilege. He did not deny David's idea of building a house, but he refused to allow David to be the one to build it because David had been a man associated with the shedding of much blood. And so the task fell, of course, to his son Solomon. And that's where we are in this passage that is before us where Solomon began preparation for one of the most magnificent structures ever built by human hands. If I calculated correctly from the reading that we've just shared together, there were over 183,000 skilled workmen and craftsmen working on this structure, and it took those 183,000 people seven and a half years to do the work of putting up this house that Solomon had conceived. In fact, Solomon said, the temple which I will build will be great. In other words, there'll be nothing like this anywhere else in the world. No one will have ever seen anything particularly exactly the same as what this temple is going to be. And it was great in many respects. It was great in terms of the cost that was associated with it. It was said a few years ago that it was the most expensive building that ever been built at that particular time. And when we consider the cost of some of the pagan temples, such as the Parthenon in Athens, Greece, or the temple of Diana of the Ephesians, of which we read in the book of Acts, or when we read about uh, today some of those great cathedrals, that dot the landscape of Europe, or when we consider the cost of some government buildings that have been constructed around the world, uh, maybe the temple even exceeded the cost of some of those structures. I really don't have any way of knowing, but I know that the cost was significant. It was remarkable. Why do you suppose that King Solomon would spend so much money on a temple like that, somebody said, when there were hungry people in Jerusalem and when the poor needed to be clothed and the elderly and the widows that could have used some financial assistance? Why would he then turn the resources of Israel on building a house like that? I'll tell you why. He said, the house which I build is great because great is our God. Great is our God above all gods. And God didn't stop him. God did not chastise Solomon for his desire to do this thing for him. God allowed that project to go forward. And aesthetically, it was a great house. I mean, nobody has any photographs of it. We have some tremendous things that people have done that are very, very accurate to the text. 
that show a magnificent structure that is absolutely beautiful. It would be absolutely stunning to us. It's said that being overlaid with plates of pure gold, it would defy a person to look on it in the morning sunlight with unshaded eyes. You, you would just find it too dazzling to be able to look upon it. The Queen of Sheba, you know, came on one occasion to visit Solomon in Jerusalem following the construction of this temple. And when she and others would come and see all of the works of Solomon, including that temple, they marveled and they said that this is beyond any description that anybody had ever given by word of mouth about this structure. So it was great and it was costly and it was great in its purpose. It was great in its meaning. It was the glory of all Israel. It was God's dwelling place among them. It was their central place of worship. And you know when you read the prophets and you read the story of the last days of Judah, for example, I've been teaching about that back home. We just finished that up last Wednesday night from the book of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. The loss of that temple in their captivity was one of the greatest losses that Judah and Israel ever suffered. It was going to be rebuilt eventually, but it was never rebuilt to its original splendor. Why all this cost? Why all this beauty? Why all this fuss about the temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem? And Solomon's answer is because great is our God. A God this great doesn't dwell in anything ordinary. A God this great cannot have a house that is beneath Him. A God this great has to have everything that human idea and human uh, hands can build that would represent the greatness that He exhibits. Now here is the principle. <laughs> We're not commanded to go out here today or asked even by God to build some physical structure that's going to be the place where God will live among us. But Solomon and David and Moses before them recognized that God wanted such a dwelling place among the people of Israel. But here is what the principle is for you and me, I think. Our response to God, folks, is always in direct proportion to our estimate of the greatness of God. Just keep that in mind. The response that you and I make to God is always in direct proportion to the estimate that we have of how great God is. And that's illustrated many times over in Scripture as well, of course, as in modern life. We respond to anything in direct proportion to our estimate of its greatness or its importance. I read a number of years ago about Booker T. Washington. And uh, I grew up in Alabama, if you couldn't tell by listening to me. And Booker T. Washington, in the early part of the 20th century, decided that he needed to build a school in Tuskegee, Alabama, for the education of southern black people. And he had some very, very meager beginnings with that project and he was really attempting the impossible and everybody knew that he was against all odds at getting that project off the ground. But anyway, 
Mr. Washington was once granted an appointment with the great philanthropist Andrew Carnegie to ask for monetary help in getting that project off the ground. And so he went to Mr. Carnegie and he made his appeal. And Mr. Carnegie reached down in his desk drawer for his checkbook and he gave Mr. Washington a check in the amount of $5,000. And of course, even though $5,000 was worth far more than it is today, it really wasn't very much to be grateful for in that day and time compared to the project. And Mr. Washington just looked at the check and handed it back with the words. He said, Mr. Carnegie, it is obvious to me that I have failed to impress you with the greatness of my cause. And so they arranged for another meeting and eventually they got to sit down together and Mr. Carnegie did some of his homework and Mr. Washington did some of his homework and when he returned, this time he gave him a check for $500,000. The Encyclopedia Britannica says that he sent that amount every year for some years thereafter to the work of the Tuskegee Institute for the Education of Southern Blacks. He became impressed with the greatness of the work, you see. He responded in proportion to his estimate of what this man was trying to do in Tuskegee, Alabama. Now, I'm asking you the question this morning based on what we've said thus far. Do you know how great our God is? Do we have any inkling how great our God actually is? From the response we're seeing, I'm, fully, I'm, I'm just fully persuaded that preachers like myself have failed to adequately impress our congregations with the importance of our cause, with the greatness of our God. God is no triviality, my friends. There is not one thing about God that can just be set aside. There is not one thing about God that we can just casual, uh, casually approach. He either has first place in a person's life or he will have absolutely no place whatsoever. Here's what Jesus had to say about that idea. Matthew chapter 10, he said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That's a tough statement. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. It has been observed that some of us have succeeded into turning Christianity into nothing more than a bless me club. We only want the church because of what the church is going to give us. We want God only if God is going to meet what we feel we need from Him. We will always be willing to receive God's favors. We will take God's blessings, but we don't want to invest in God. We don't want to give anything in return to our God. And so what do we have? We have a culture of folk who shop around for a church that can give them the most. They are looking for a church that meets their felt needs, but it doesn't ask them for anything. It doesn't demand anything of them. We call those today seeker-friendly 
churches. Have you heard that terminology? There's nothing required of you in a seeker-friendly church. There's no commitment that's to be made to any doctrine. There's no expectation. There's no repentance. There's no obedience. There's no obeisance to God. And that's where the crowds will generally gather. But here's what Jesus said. He said, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. My friends, this cultural casualness business of our times is tearing at the very heart and soul of Christianity. We've got to come to realize what's happening about us. It's as far from the attitude the genuine believer ought to exhibit in the presence of our great God as the North Pole is from the South Pole. Oh, how we need an enhancement of our love. Oh, how we need an enhancement of our respect and reverence for our God who is great above anything that's ever pretended to be a God and for everything that pertains to God. Now, I'm not talking about money here this morning. At least I'm not talking primarily about money. Our money is an important consideration when it comes to what we're going to do for the Lord's work and how we're going to contribute to the expanse of His kingdom. We cannot eliminate that totally from the discussion. But folks, I'm telling you that we respond to God with our prosperity in direct proportion to our estimate of how important He is in our lives. And if God is not important in our lives, He will not be important in your checkbook. What do you spend the most money on? Things that are important to you. Things that bring you pleasure. Things that gratify you. Or things that you consider absolute necessities which you really wish you could do without. I think about health insurance when I think about that. And there are many, many dollars that are spent on that every single month in paying premiums for something I hope I never have to use. But I can't do without it. And so I do it because it's important. And I invest in it because I need the help that it can give me in cases of emergency. And so what I'm speaking more directly about here this morning is showing the concern and the reverence and the respect and the obeisance that's due to God in every single way. Our God is great. He is above all gods. This is why the psalmist said of him, he said the word of the Lord is right and all his works are done in truth. He loves righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the, the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the depth in, in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done, he commanded, and it stood fast. We read that earlier. What a great God he is. Let everybody stand in awe of him. Although Solomon built that magnificent temple, and although Solomon did that work by the authority of God himself, 
He spoke a truth about it that we must not overlook. Notice this back in 2 Chronicles. He said, who is able to build him a temple since heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Who can or who am I then that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? Paul agreed. The apostle Paul agreed with the statement that Solomon is making there in 2 Chronicles chapter 2 and Acts 17. He said to the Athenians, God that made the world and all the things that are in it, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't really dwell in temples that have been made with hands. Solomon wasn't fooled by that idea. Paul was not fooled by that idea. You know, it's interesting that in the New Testament there's no mention that the Christians ever built or bought or owned a material building of any kind that might be called a temple or a cathedral or a sanctuary to the Lord. And in contrast to that, much of 20th century American Christianity is in some way associated always with a material building. It's associated with a piece of property, which is often elaborately beautiful, costly, the highest priority, the biggest item in a congregation's budget, the focal point of virtually all of the church's activity. Now, there's not anything wrong with any of that, but the average Christian's practice of his religious faith is usually within the confines of a church building. And there is something wrong with that. This is a place we come to worship and to be instructed, but we leave here to serve God. You know, there's so many churches that think that serving God is always done by who got to wait on the table today. And if they're not going to be table waiters, well, I'm not serving God. Our poor sisters have never served God then, right? We need to come away from that idea and recognize that the service that we render to God is what we do when we leave this place fully fueled by the teaching of the Word of God so that we know what to do when we encounter the world and the people who need Jesus and the teaching that goes on in this place and the opportunity that we have to congregate them with us so that they can learn more about our faith and about our Lord. There's nothing wrong with a church owning a building for use in its work. There's nothing wrong with the church owning a piece of property upon which they assemble for worship, but it's wrong to think that we can lock God inside and just meet God here when we get ready three times a week. We need to recognize that our great God is bigger than this building. And He's bigger than this church. And He's bigger than this whole world. Great is our God. Paul introduced Him to the Athenians as that God that made the world and everything in it. He is Lord, meaning, Lord, meaning He's supreme ruler of heaven and earth. You know, you take all of the magistrates, all of the kings, all of the governors, all of the presidents, you put them all in one room and they've got all this worldly authority and you can add it all up and they still don't have what the supreme ruler, the Lord of heaven and earth has. He not only created the heaven and the earth as we learn from the first sentence in the Bible, but He is the ruler over it all. He is the one in charge. He always has been and always will be. And we owe Him at the very least the great measure of respect we give to our lowly kings. That we give to our lowly prime ministers. 
that we give to our lowly presidents and others. Here's something Solomon said of note. In Ecclesiastes 12, he said, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. I ask you this. Is there a court anywhere in this world that can do this? Is there a court or a tribunal or a magistrate anywhere in this world who can get all of the truth all the time, completely revealed, so that there's not anything hidden? No. But there will come a time when God will. And God can. He is capable of doing every bit of that. And He knows whether every secret thing, whether it's good or whether it be evil, He knows the substance of that. Oh, the emptiness sometimes of our words. We, we say we stand in awe of Him, but we ignore His commandments. How do you do that? How do you say I stand in awe of you and then deliberately go about disobeying Him? I hope you're a Christian this morning. I hope that you're a Christian who reverences the name of God, that you want above all else to do His will. But if you're not... I'm also praying that you will humbly and reverently and respectfully submit yourself wholly to doing His will as it is expressed in His Word. We all need to come to Jesus. It's even become quite an expression in our language, hasn't it? An idiom. He had a come-to-Jesus moment, somebody says. and Usually that means he got serious. He realized that it's not all fun and games. He realized... You couldn't just be dishonest. You had to face the truth and say what needed to be said. But we come to Jesus, my friends, by turning from our sinful lifestyles. We come to Jesus when we repent. It's not hard to baptize people, but it is terribly difficult to get them to repent. You can always baptize someone, but you will never do anything about getting them to repent until they actually do the work of doing it and determine to give it up. He commands all men everywhere to repent. Paul told the Ephesians and uh, or excuse me, the, the Athenians in Acts 17 and verse 30, and by being baptized into the death of his only begotten Son, as Romans 6 and verse 3 indicates, we have our sins washed away in his blood. And in that way, we're able to approach God with clean hands, with pure hearts. We're his children. We belong to him. He is our Father. We approach Him out of reverence and out of respect because He has received us and He has forgiven us our sins and, and, and He will help plant our feet on higher ground and eventually welcome us into heaven when life is finished here. Would you do that today? Would you make up your mind and have the resolve of heart this morning to say, I need God. I can't push him aside one second longer. I can't act as if he doesn't exist. I exist because he exists. And all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do, Hebrews chapter 4 says. And that means that every one of us is accountable to God, even if we don't believe we are. Everybody is accountable to God, even if they don't believe they are. Don't ever forget that. And don't ever begin to live like someone that doesn't have to answer to God. We all have to answer to God. And we will answer to God, some of us, sooner than others. 
You may be answering to God now. You're making a decision this morning about whether or not you're going to be a child of God, whether you're going to revere Him in your own heart, put Him as Lord on the throne of your life, and say, not my will, but yours be done. And if this morning we can encourage your obedience to our great God, who is above anything that ever called itself a God, then I hope you'll come forward and let us know how we can facilitate that for you while together we stand and while we sing. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.